In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust in this good news. Here's Jesus. Proclaiming the gospel without an atonement theory. Who's responsible for this? This is Jesus proclaiming the gospel, in other words, before Jesus' death and resurrection. And without explaining how Jesus' death works. This will get you kicked out of a wanna. <laughs> Just saying. And yet, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ become a part of the gospel, as well as the ascension. And Pentecost, and they're crucial to how the early church understood God's kingdom proclamation. But we're not preaching that today. We're going to preach on the good news Jesus is proclaiming in Mark chapter 1. Because we need it. The good news of Jesus, friends, is an immediate opportunity. It's a kairos, an opportunistic, momentous, important, pregnant time. A here and now real-world invitation into God's reign and rule. So all people, all possessions, all politics, all P-words are now organized according to the love and justice of God. Change your hearts and lives today, church. Let's trust in God's way of being human together. So there's two things to name here. There's 30 things. But if I preach more than 15 minutes, Father Ben will spank me. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> Sorry. I started some ADD medicine last week, and I am like super dialed in, and I, um, I'm having trouble filtering thoughts. God's kingdom. <laughs> Two points. God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not a spiritual afterlife. That's the first point. The second point, repent and believe, or as our translation says today, change your heart and lives, is not an internal, personal, private, abstract invitation. All right, first point, God's kingdom is at hand. When Jesus says, here comes God's kingdom, he's talking about real-world material things. He's talking about, we could use the phrase, he's talking about an alternative political economy. There's a tendency in the church to spiritualize God's kingdom, that it's a dematerialized and religious thing. But friends, think about this. Jesus proclaims this, we're told, first to fishermen and later to others, but fishermen, let's deal with them. 
And, and something spiritual and abstract sure wouldn't entice them to leave their jobs and their families. Jesus isn't calling four guys to a three-year spiritual retreat. Well, everyone those four guys love suffer because they're not being able to eat because they're gone. See, fishing was a subsistence-level job. It, it, uh, there was licenses and fees and taxes and tolls. It was tightly controlled by the Roman Empire via their puppet, Herod Antipas. So they would work all night, clean stuff in the morning, take the fish to uh, wherever you exchange the fish for some kind of capital, sell it, catch a few hours of sleep in the afternoon, have supper, and then back at it. Anyone ever worked the night shift for minimum wage? Yeah. The good old days, right? Phil? See, friends, if you were caught in an oppressive economic system between, somewhere between abject poverty and living hand to mouth by wicked colonizers making just enough to eke out a living but not really be fully alive while participating in an unjust system that harmed and oppressed you and your loved ones and a man came by and offered you an abstract spiritual retreat. That's the kind of gospel proclamation James says is evil. That's saying be warm and well fed to people who are cold and hungry. But if he was offering you an alternative way of being human, where people and possessions and politics were organized under justice and love, you may just leave and go with him. We have to see the same context here in Jonah. Our reading from Jonah today, Jonah sent to Nineveh, but what he's, called, what he's, what he's doing there isn't, isn't like a religious activity. He's not, he's, not, he's not living missionally. See, the book of Jonah is read on the highest of Jewish holy days, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement or repentance, because God's calling Nineveh, an evil Assyrian empire that had oppressed Israel, like hurt people, killed people, enslaved people. And Jonah was, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, a wealthy, powerful nation, and cry out against it, but he refused he went the other way, which some of you know this. Some of you know the story. If you've been in church for 20 minutes, you probably know the story. Jonah would jump on a boat, went the other way, a storm comes. He told the sailors it was his fault because he was being unfaithful. And he said, throw me overboard. Don't miss this. Jonah would rather die than extend the gospel to his enemies. God saves Jonah, though, from drowning when a big fish swallows him up, and then the Lord speaks and the fish to the fish, and it pukes. God tells Jonah a second time to declare against Nineveh, and finally Jonah relents and half-heartedly does what God says, and Nineveh fasts, laments evil, and ceases their evil behavior. That's important. They, Nineveh... Nineveh doesn't close their eyes and pat their heart and say, Jonah, you really can preach it. Is there a recording of this? I've got to share it. <laughs> there's, there's no abstraction to Jonah's message. They cease their evil. 
It's clear here that this isn't some kind of spiritual revival. It was primarily about ethics. We're told later in Jonah 4 that the reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, he says, I know, God, you're merciful and compassionate. You're very patient. You're full of faithful love, willing not to destroy. I hate it. (laughs) Jonah's a stand-in character for Israel. Most Jewish interpreters think this is a a parable about a man who stands for Israel, and it's an indictment against Israel. The book ends with Jonah wishing a second time that his life would end, because death is better than watching his enemies repent. The good news of Jesus is an immediate opportunity, a here and now real-world invitation into God's reign and rule, into God's political economy, where people and possessions and politics, parakeets, are now organized in the love and justice of God. Change your hearts and lives today. Cease evil behavior. Knock it off. Do not begrudge God's mercy and compassion. Let's trust in God's way of being human together. So God's kingdom isn't a spiritual life, it's our actual life. It's this. What other life do you have? That's it. But also, repent and believe or change your hearts and lives isn't this private, internal, personal, abstract thing. Let's go back to our fisher dudes. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. They left their nets. They left their boats. They left their family. They left hired workers. They made real-world decisions about their responsibilities and relationships, didn't they? Now, what sparked this entire good news was a little uh, research I did on this idea that Jesus says, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people, right? This fishing for people oftentimes gets sort of, uh, becomes synonymous with saving souls, right? Like go out and save souls. Who was part of a college ministry that made you go out and save souls? Who led a college ministry? No. (laughs) Friends, we want to listen to the scriptures well. That's why we do this. Fishing for people isn't a euphemism for saving souls in the scriptures. It's an allusion to Jeremiah 16, 16, where God says he's going to send out hordes of fishermen to catch unrepentant Israel. It's a phrase that would call to mind the correction or censoring of wicked people. And hooking fish, which is in, you know, in the same conceptual universe, is used in Amos 4.2 and Ezekiel 29.4 as a euphemism for judgment upon the rich and powerful. That changes things, doesn't it? Jesus is going to subsistence fisher people, men, and saying to them, hey, will you join me in struggling to overthrow the existing order of oppression and injustice? Will you, common, poor man, join me in speaking hard, corrective truths to oppressive, unjust people? John puts a different spin on it. 
leaving a fishing industry to reorder your social economic life. In other words, fishing for people was a summons to what we might call community development work. It was an invitation into reordering society where the poor are blessed and the meek inherit the earth. That might catch on. I'm going to say that more and more. And Jesus was recruiting from the poor and the meek to do the work of collecting the rich and powerful to change their hearts and lives. So the disciples weren't signing up for some new religion or spiritual quest. They were pledging allegiance to a new government Jesus was instituting in the law of love that would up in and reorder their political economy. NBD. We see the same thing with Jonah. Jonah was told to fish for people. Same thing. An Israelite who's oppressed by powerful rich people, he was told to fish for them, and he didn't want to. But he was peopled by a fish. And then finally, reluctantly, holding his nose through clenched teeth, fished for people. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul describes that the inauguration of Jesus' political economy, the kingdom of God, uh, 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 creates a new social order. Notice that he says social institutions, though they're, they're being changed by this new reality, those who have wives should be like people who don't have them, right? Those of you who have wives and in need of a wife, life verse, stay away from that one. <laughs> Paul's point is that the kingdom of God disrupts and reorients present social structures. Do you see that? Add into this that Mark begins this whole chapter, this whole pericope, this, this section with after John was arrested, which gives the reader, calls to mind for the reader that this, things aren't hunky-dory in Israel. That there's a tyrant who's arresting people calling for justice and beheading them. And Jesus is like, I guess I'm up. Let's ride. Settle up your horses. The good news of Jesus, friends, is an immediate opportunity. A here and now, real world invitation into God's reign and rule. Full of justice and love. So people and possessions and politics, they're now organized differently. So change your hearts and lives today. Cease evil behavior. And don't begrudge God's mercy and compassion. Let's trust in this God's way of being human together. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this today? Friends, every week in, in two minutes, we're going to pray together. And there's going to be a prayer on the screen. And part of that is, I don't preach so that you'll become smarter. We preach so that we can hear good news and do something about it immediately. And part of that is coming to the table. Part of that is passing the peace. Part of that is Eucharist. And part of that is prayer. So there's going to be a chance for you to immediately respond to whatever the Spirit's speaking to you. Not my prescriptions, but his or her inspirations. Two, it's tricky to talk about political economies these days, right? We have a lot of noise in the public square that is... Uh, dangerous, threatening rhetoric. 
about using coercive, violent power to get your way in the public square. That's one pitfall. The other pitfall is to, is to try to disentangle or distance oneself from the messy work of organizing life and property and people and saying that the gospel of Jesus is apolitical. I'm sorry if I'm the first person to tell you this, but it's not. It's not. not I mean, I, it, it, we can say it's not partisan. But the kingdom of God has something to say about how we organize our money and our time and our bodies. What we, what we think is important, who's protected and who's vulnerable, all of that matters to Jesus. So we've got to figure out a way to have a, a faith that, that matters in public more than um, cringeworthy headlines. Also three, I think this passage is often used, and I'm a priest saying this, as a, sort of a, an example of a, a vocation, a call, right? There's a call on my life, etc. because I'm a rector, vicar, father, priest, pastor. Take your pick. But I think it, goes, it does more than that, because work and vocation and the political economy of the kingdom of God, all of it's sacred, all of it's holy. So what does this mean for... What does it mean for how we assess what is a good job? Right? What's a good job? How will we know if we had a good job? What does job satisfaction mean? How would I know if I was satisfied in my job in accordance with God's kingdom? How do I assess this even? I think this passage and Jesus' call to live in his kingdom confronts us with these questions. We need to ask them together. We need to wrestle together and support each other. Part of the political economy of the world, right? we sang, we sang in uh, one song today um, that we renounce the world. Christians, I think we've, we've misunderstood that that phraseology, that conceptual world comes from John's gospel. And in John's gospel, the world isn't the material, physical reality. The world is the alternative logic and system that runs contrary to the will of God. So we have to back up and just say, I don't hate physical matter. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to identify logics and systems that run on unjust, oppressive means and to build and create something just and loving in its place. How does your vocation contribute to that? The good news of Jesus is an immediate opportunity. A here and now real-world invitation into God's reign and rule will people and possessions and politics are organized in justice, in love. So change your hearts and lives today. Cease evil behavior. Don't begrudge God's compassion and mercy, even, even on really, really bad dudes. And let's trust in God's way of being human together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.